Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with outstanding tennis journalists Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And Rafael Nadal is the main topic of discussion on this episode of Three. He exited in the semifinals of Paris after having a week where he, he struggled throughout and Zverev was finally the one to overtake the Spaniard. Joel, what did you make of that result? And by the way, actually before, let me just preview um, we want to talk about Nadal's stylistic ancestor, as Joel would put it for sure, because I've heard I've heard uh, you say that a couple times, Guillermo Vilas in a new documentary out on Netflix. So we'll get to that uh, later in the show. Joel, what you what'd you make of the Paris result? Well, Zverev played really well, played an excellent match. You know, it's interesting. Zverev is being coached by uh, David Ferrer. And so David Ferrer probably looks at Zverev and says, OK, if I could just get this guy to play some smart, composed tennis, and he's got a big serve. He's got a shot that Fur didn't have. So that's kind of a knockout punch that really put him in position to win a great many points or take charge of a lot of points against Nadal. So that kind of turned the tables in that match. And at the same time, though, Nadal struggled all week. I mean, he had several three-setters and didn't quite seem uh, on his game. And I wondered, the, the court seemed a little, a little slow and sticky. And so not that Nadal is a fast court, but a slow indoor is, a, is its own kind of conundrum. I just think that indoor tennis is so different than outdoor tennis. And during the pandemic, I, I used to be an exclusively almost indoor player because I just don't like the hot sun and the, you know, cancer risk and all that. During the pandemic, I went exclusively outdoors and it really drove home to me the differences. And Nadal had an interview recently where he said that every ball is different due to the variables um, that the incoming ball presents to you. And if you think about it, if each shot is a set of variables, whether it be spin on the ball, speed of the ball, angle, all that stuff, Wind is a variable, sun is a variable. So when you move indoors, you're eliminating a lot of those things. And those may play better to other players' strengths while Nadal may be a guy who's able to process those uh, multiple variables in a better way. That but remember, spot on. Yeah. Nadal bageled someone a couple weeks ago indoors. True. I mean, he's a, he's a, he can do anything. He's a magician, but it just, in his post-match interview after the Zverev match, Nadal said that Zverev was dropping bombs and he was having to adjust his return position. And, you know, that's not, usually Rafa has that stuff down cold. So I do think that indoor play uh, favors other players a little bit more, but Ask me if Rafa can win indoors. Yeah, if he put his mind to it. Yeah, of course he can. Well, well that's I what I found so fascinating. Zero, um, I'm sorry, Gil, what were you saying? I was going to say the return that Amy just mentioned. That's what I found so fascinating about this tournament because coming off of the greatest return performance I've ever seen by Rafael Nadal in the French Open final, uh, he follows it up. It struggles with his return all week. Well, a different surface. It is a different surface. I mean, the servers mm -hmm. had much more advantage on this indoor but i think i think i like amy's point about the elements and the variables um i love playing in the wind by the way i really like it and oh. and and, <laughs> and, it, and, I know, and it's and but it has to do with coping it's purely it's it's highly mental and a guy like nadal he has great tools for win too when you've got margin and footwork 
I mean, he's, he's fully locked and loaded. I watched him play Murray in the Indian Wells final in 09. It was incredibly windy. And he just destroyed him because, again, so much margin. And again, that outdoor thing. So in a way, other players are less disadvantaged indoors, I think is the point. So someone like Zverev, mm-hmm. who we haven't thought of as a, as a mental giant, is like, okay, here I am in a box. This is good. No wind, no sun, no, no shifting breezes those other factors and and you're right whereas so and and that's that's historically been true i mean these um big servers like playing indoors so joel i guess i'm not a mental giant because i prefer to play indoors well no you brought up something very important and i've i know this too i wear long sleeves all the time when i play now i mean being light-skinned i think the skin cancer thing i think if i lived where you lived and i had a choice i might play indoors a lot more too so be a John different- McEnroe has gone far as to say that one of the slams should be indoors and that we should, I don't know if it's for the reasons that I think there should be more indoor tennis. I just think it would draw more people to the game, people that live in colder climates. But McEnroe believes that, yeah, there's, there's a real place for indoor tennis and we should try to elevate it. And of course he, he loved that. And I think didn't, uh, you know, your McEnroe is a fantastic indoor player for some of those reasons. I mean, I think, an attacking player, a shorter swing player would, um, would like that stuff. Just like you've heard some, uh, some clay quarters say maybe the season ending championships should once be played on clay, right? Mm-hmm. Even if maybe it's indoor clay. And so a lot of stuff around this. McEnroe also a lower margin player, right? Someone who wants to hit half volleys and no, 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 that's, there's no low margin. You're, this, 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 this is our generational. No low margin? No. Flat, low? No, no. See, you're, you're, you're not, no, Macro's game was house money. He's not, he's, he's not just hitting half volleys all the time. He's, he's coming to net, which is a very high percentage play. He's hitting the ball well within himself. He never, you watch Macro play, you will rarely see him make a wrong shot selection. He's hitting a lot of balls cross court. He, he's not playing. Yeah, I, I get it. This is a fun generational talk we're having. I know since I'm left yeah. hand that he's, he's taking balls mildly on the rise, but he's absorbing and redirecting. He's doing some of the things that uh, Radwanska, Hingis, Roger Federer. This is but how is that oh, not yeah. half volley though, Joel? Because it, to, to come into the net, especially that much, you're going to have to hit a lot of half volleys. And half volley it, by nature is taking something on the rise. Right, but it's not, but it's not, no, it's, but it's not high risk. It's not low margin. It's not low margin when you play the ball. Well, maybe for him, right? But you just said he's, he's redirecting all the time. Right, which is harder than going back back the same way. No, but he's so re- I just I, I see McEnroe. He's even redirecting cross court. I'm not saying he's redirecting down the line. I think we have a we should have a fun when we have our our show offsite retreat at the court. <laughs> the way it, I think this has a lot to do with how we've learned the game. It even gets back to our um our service return position thing and, yes. sh- and strokes and length of stroke and length of backswing and how you use your body to move against the ball. I mean, you're from the era of racket head speed. McEnroe was not. McEnroe was you, you moved against the ball and you, and you, and you, you took in the pace from the other person. So his game, his game is not high risk, believe me. Not but it's, it, correct me Why if I'm he... wrong, it, McEnroe is like a big continental grip guy where so much of his game was played in continental grip, right? Yeah, well, McEnroe, like McEnroe and Rod Laver, and the game was a lot lower bouncing. A lot more balls in that day were hit between, let's say, the knees and the ankles. The surfaces were faster. The bounces were lower. So you had to have some 
some movement going. I mean, there's a, there's a certain type of movement, there's a certain type of north-south quality of macros movement that is very much part of it. Yeah, so he's kind of like sweeping through yeah. the ball and the, the ascent of high balls and slower ball, slower courts, that was not so fun for McEnroe. That was part of the things. He talks about technology, but I think a lot of it has to do with, um, with spin and rotation. Borg, Borg, he could problem solve, but as they got, as other people got better at that, even Lendl, that was harder. For the record, I, uh, I don't mind wind either. And I remember I was in a doubles match and my partner was getting kind of negative about the wind. And I told him, look, I was serving. And I said, it's so windy out here. If I get my serve in the box, they're not going to return it. So we're fine. <laughs> with the wind, well, the other thing with the wind, to me, the wind is about overcoming vanity. And I think that's why one of the reasons Adal is such a great wind player. He's not, he, 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 this is called an effectiveness contest. This is not called a beauty contest. So let's acknowledge once we're playing on a wind. Yeah, no one's going to call this match mutually elegant tennis. This is just going to be a back alley effort to kind of grub it out. And there's certain things we can't do. You know, it's like I said to a friend, he goes, why do you like playing in the wind? I go, because you don't. That's it. <laughs> exactly. So if I can like something. And so it, it is kind of like, and, and to me, I like to think as the physical part is much harder for me in tennis. So I'm going to try to take as much command over the mental part. It's like, of course, I get more let cords than my other opponent. There's no there's no data for that but yeah I always get the lucky you know you just it's attitudinal the wind mm, well y'all crazy I hate playing in the wind yeah I, I guess well, I'm hey. a vanity player <laughs> well wait well haven't we figured out this is a little bit of the theme of the show I mean Amy isn't uh aren't you a little more of a of a Roger in by temperament you like Roger you're stylish you have your one-handed backhand right <laughs> yeah I guess I guess um <laughs> I don't know. I, I, the, the one we've talked about this before, but the one person I wish I had more of was Nadal. And when I'm in a match or in competition, my mind is frequently going to Nadal. What would he do in this situation? So, what do you so tell you? What, what do you? What's the answer? To focus and every point, you know, every point is a fight for focus. I think he said that. Oh, that's a great quote. I never yep. heard that. Quote. I love that. That's a, so, well, then if it's a fight for focus, then you can control it because that's within us. That's attitude and that's our own focus. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not, you know, no one, my opponent, my opponent is doing plenty of things to disrupt how I hit the ball, but they're not necessarily disrupting my attention span, how I pay attention to the ball. So that's But he really puts his head down. He never right. pays any attention to external factors. He puts his head down and tries his best. Right. That, yeah. That's kind of, that's the mindset. My, my coach, Chris Lewitt, who wrote the book, uh, The Secrets of Spanish Tennis, actually had an acronym for exactly what you're saying, Amy, WWRD. And he would literally would, tell us that, WWRD, what would, what Rafa, would Rafa do? do? Oh, yeah. yeah he would yell. I love it. I yeah. do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Love it. Yeah. I think that he book, would say WWRD. I'm going to get that. Uh, I'm going to get that book. I mean, or maybe I even have it somewhere, but it's uh, definitely some aspects to it. You know, I don't know. I, you know, we've talked about the suffering, but as far as the um, the focus stuff goes and the attitude, that's that's pretty good stuff about how to compete. Mm -hmm. Well, how about uh, Guillermo Vilas, not from Spain, from Argentina, but uh, someone who who you really see a lot of Vilas in Nadal, Joel. 
Well, Vilas, if you watch him, he is the stylistic ancestor to Nadal. He left-handed, clay quarter, topspin. I mean, Rod Laver had a continental grip kind of topspin, but Vilas brought in a more Eastern migrating towards Western topspin on both sides, big clay quarter. He and Borg really brought in topspin into the game in a major way in the 70s, in a way it hadn't been before with high margin and also kind of a certain type of a physicality. I think of him as kind of a, it's like a conquistador thing. You watch Vilas and then you go Vilas and you go Thomas Muster and you go Nadal. It's like, I am here. No, I, you're the one who's going to suffer. I will just inflict pain on you and I will hit <clears throat> lacerating topspin. And Vilas was a incredibly hard worker when he started working with Ian Tyriak after Vilas had worked hard before, but Tyriak kind of said to him, okay, you like your poetry and your music. All right, enough of that. This is what we saw in this documentary. You want to be a great player? You're going to work like a dog. And Vilas, I watched him play a lot in the 70s. And I remember seeing him practice and lots of the players I've gotten to know tell me about that. He's an incredible workhorse, like Nadal that way. Yes, the work ethic, the never give up. And from a data perspective, because of my interest in data, I was drawn to the documentary because of the controversy over him being robbed of being number one for a while. And we won't get into that on this show because obviously it's a show about Nadal, Djokovic and Federer. But I do see, Joel, what you're talking about. And the footage in the documentary was fabulous. I recommend it to anyone. And uh, the, just the work ethic and the never give up and the the, the focus that we're talking about, the tunnel vision, um, you, you immediately see the similarities. Yeah, and the, the focus the, and the topspin and the rotation, I mean, the, the rackets and the strings were different then, and so you couldn't generate as much, as much rotation, but he was generating plenty, and you see some of these great matches. He set a number of clay court records that Nadal ended up breaking, and, uh, and uh, Vilas, you know, Guillermo Carrio was named after Guillermo Vilas. He was to... to inspired by him and uh, Vilas one of kind of from the tennis rock star era of also of the 70s you know you had Borg, Connors and Macro and then you also had Vitas Gerolitis and Guillermo Vilas were among the others kind of in the band and you see in the documentary you see where the game was going then with uh, you know colorful clothes and he had the long hair and he had he, he had quite a lot of charisma in his time but Gil you're you know you're younger than us and again I bring this up frequently but tell us what you made of seeing Vilas in that time? Well, I was I was looking for the the Nadal comparison there, and obviously you have the obvious one, which is the leftiness. And Joel, you you're, you are also in the club, right? Um, but physical, a certain physical intensity, a certain physical domination that Vilas looked to impose, and also the way he trained, uh, like a like a machine, um, you know, just embracing drilling which is something that not all tennis players do i think at at all levels not all tennis players embrace drilling and nadal and vilas uh both do that just to get to to a level of kind of machine-like play what i'm what i was kind of curious about is the comparison of vilas and borg who are great rivals uh because you hear some of the same things about both of them the topspin uh, the ability to move e extremely well, last very long in rallies, to have that distinct advantage on clay. How, how are they distinct from each other, Joel? 
Borg I'll, and Demos. That's a great question. I'll tell you a few things. First of all, one thing that's neat, and this has the player development angle, is that they come from countries that had some tennis tradition. There were some very excellent players from Sweden and one from Argentina, but this wasn't this wasn't player development top down. This is supports my not going my ongoing theory. Innovation and greatness comes from the periphery. <clears throat> it's, it's the same way it comes from someone like Richard Williams in Compton, Gloria Connors in, in East St. Louis. Um, now you've got some guy in Argentina. He's not following, there isn't a conventional program that says this is how you're supposed to play tennis. <clears throat> he creates something else. Then there's this Swedish kid who likes hockey and you see Borg and, and they both have the top option. So as far as the difference in players, here's, here's a few things. Um, Borg had a little more of a live body. Borg had a body a little more like a Roger Federer, faster, a little more nimble, a little more flexible, better serve. And he had some incredible, like this incredible pulse. I mean, I've heard some incredible things about Borg having a pulse higher than, higher than 35. And he could like, you know, be on the bike as long as a marathon. I think there was some incredible genetic things. And I think when Borg played Vilas, Every player has a shot tolerance. We have a shot number in our heads, you know, three, four, 40, 50. And Vilas might've been 60, but Borg might've been 70. <laughs> and, and I think the way it works in tennis, if two people play close enough to one another, Jack Kramer told me this years ago, if we play similarly styles and you're 10% better than me, you'll beat me 85% of the time. It's like running a sprint. You run it in 10-2, I run it in 10-4. You just because I can't I can't put someone in off the bench. I can't make a trade. I'm kind of at the limits of my skill set. And one of the things I I knew from Vilas from watching him play a lot, and even his temperamental, his creative side, he liked being a shot maker. Lefty, every lefty, including Nadal, has this thing. He didn't want to just hunker down. He liked hitting running passing shots and topspin lobs. And there's Borg, who's just like there, consistent, staying back, hunkering. Concrete. In some ways, Borg a little even more like Novak than like Rafa that way, like Novak with more touch. It's just like cross court, cross court, run, run. And, and Vilas, like, go watch, go watch the first point of the 1978 French Open final. I think it's 50 shots. <clears throat> and Vilas, wow. <laughs> Vilas wasn't that great a volleyer, so he's not going to attack Borg. So um, an ex-pro said to me, he said, why didn't Vilas once say, start a match off with Borg? knowing that Vilas was so fit and decide, okay, I'm going to just hit every ball down the middle on this rally. I'm going to resist any shot making and this match will end on cramps. If the first rally lasts 200 shots. So be it. If the second, you know, we're just, here we are. But Vilas, he didn't do that. I just think Borg, Borg was faster. Borg was a little more physically nimble, better, better serve too, which on clay might be negligible, but it doesn't hurt. Just to, yeah, beat him a lot. Right. Joel, did you have some story, a personal story? Thank you. Yes. Yes, please. I, I, I got to know Vilas at the um, John Newcomb Fantasy Camp. Well, I knew him. I, I spent some time with him at some of these Connors Tour events in the 90s. Very charming, really fun, friendly, funny, just like a, the life of the party. Really <laughs> fun guy and, and creative. You know, all that work ethic when he's off the court. He's just really fun. So, um, so at the John Newcomb Fantasy Camp, uh, Vilas comes there one year and he's a captain and everybody loves him. And then we have some afternoon time, we can all hang out. And he sees me, he goes, oh, lefty, lefty, let's hit. Sure. So we're hitting for 20, 30 minutes. And there's the, lefty, lefty is kind of 
distinct for both lefties, forehand to forehand, backhand to backhand. And of course, I'm sure he's probably playing a degree of customer tennis. I mean, he's probably ramping it up or down, but we're rallying is let's play some points. So start playing some points. And on, on one of them, it's a short ball to my forehand. And there's an interesting visual thing. And I can remember this shot to this day, line up the lefty forehand approach, which versus righties can sometimes go cross court, sometimes down the line, but it's to the righty forehand. So now I'm lining it up and I hit it to Vilas's down the line back. And I have the exact picture in my head of how Connors, who was my subject of my book and my you know, hero forever, um, would line up that foreign approach, hit it kind of flat down the line. I hit it flat down the line to Vilas, his backhand, and he runs over there. He turns his shoulders. And you know, by the way, if you ever play a lefty, keep in mind they like to hit backhand passing shots cross court. They see it a little sooner and that angle, like watch Denis Shapovalov. They just okay. love that cross court. They just give it a whip. So, mm -hmm. so I, and here comes Vilas. He comes running over there, turns his shoulders. He does not, this is not a customer shot he hits. He just annihilates a cross court. <laughs> I know it's going there. I move to my right, but I, I'm late. Fortunately, I'm late. I was, I'm about three inches from it. If I'd been early, I'd have been wearing it. It would have been a tattoo. <laughs> so it, it flies past me. It flies past me and people are watching and everybody kind of has a laugh. It's like, whoa, look at this. He just torched me. And, uh, and Vilas yells at me, I did it to Connors. I'll do it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. And he's so gracious and so friendly. I mean, he's such a, I, I think what makes the documentary so good is what a, a human he is and how a multifaceted, the book shows, the documentary shows off his diaries and his music and his poetry, just a fascinating person. And again, maybe, I mean, we don't know about a lot about the inner life of Nadal, but there's a, in both of them, there's a certain kind of, uh, the work ethic, but a certain generosity of soul. Like I've always been impressed by the kind of, there's a, there's a kindness to Nadal when he's not. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the kind of thing that you can't fake. Correct. Um, yeah. Good point. And how emotional Vilas got, you know, at the, the whole number one thing. I mean, he, it just showed, I, this struck me because, you know, he's, you know, many, many decades removed from his playing career, yet he was brought to tears by the idea that someone did the, ran the numbers and found that he should have been number one. Right. That much later. And I, you know what? We can talk about this another time because, again, this is the, the big three, but I really think the ATP should make this right. Well, I'd like, I want to see we the can data. Talk about this the, now. the documentary. The documentary, because it was so evocative and so cinematic, I would like to see. I'd like to see the the Amy Lundy approach to the <laughs> taken, where you kind of see, okay, show me this, show me that. I mean, this this isn't this isn't like telling me you know a beautiful mind uh, quadratic equation for the first you know, for the flight to Mars. Show me how the yeah. data the rankings were crunched differently yep. yep. then. They yeah, were, yeah, were, it's almost like cold case, you know, put a detective on it and go through it very systematically. But that's what, this guy, that's what the guy did, but we didn't, that, and there's a written yeah. story about it, but I need to see, I mean, you know the same because you do this. Okay, three pages, thank you very much. You know, just show me, mm -hmm. 
methodology. I hope someone takes up this cause because the day and age in which we live, it is very important to keep track of the historical record and get the numbers right. And uh, I hope the ATP does address it at some point. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Amy, and I agree with Joel as well. And that was the one part of the documentary that wasn't really there was like the, okay, these are the results. This is what happened. I'm going to show you graphically. Um, and, and I definitely would have liked that. But nonetheless, uh, a really good doc. I recommend it. It's called Settling the Spo Score, Guillermo Vilas, available on Netflix. And as you're watching, you can think, what, uh, what about Vilas led to Rafael Nadal with Thomas Muster in between? Um, so that'll do it for us here on three. We really enjoyed uh, this discussion and uh, hope that you did as well. Leave a like on the video, a comment on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe. We are available on all podcast platforms and we greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And, that'll, and we will see you next time on the next episode of three.